Lord, thank you that you are so good to us, and uh, we pray that we could connect with how good you are. Uh, Lord, we come to you with, with a need that we're probably not aware of. And so show us that need, and then show us Jesus. In the name of Christ we pray, amen. All right, I, uh, the, the page, the sermon page is there for you. An outline is there for you if you love that kind of thing. The topics we've been covering are on the far left of the sermon page. We've been looking at eight attitudes. What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean to follow him? Jesus had his 12 disciples, and they were given commands and instructions. Uh, some of the things that he said to them apply to us. So uh, we, we can't get away uh, with... Uh, without thinking that we are also included in the call to, to discipleship, all right? So uh, we've been covering these eight attitudes or characteristics of a disciple. Today is the last part of this series. Next week, I'll be covering the first temptation of Christ in the wilderness, uh, Matthew chapter 4, and uh, we'll go through each of the temptations of Christ, and then we'll have Palm Sunday and then we'll have Easter. And so uh, this is a, a sweet uh, lineup of Sundays coming up. I hope you will be able to join in. Uh, gospel confidence is the subject. Witnessing, sharing, evangelism, confessing. This morning was a form of confessing Christ. Uh, when uh, the Adams family was here, they were up front confessing Christ before you and essentially before the world and before God. And uh, that is an important, important aspect of, of what it means to be a Christian. Now today I want to cover gospel confidence arises when our fears are addressed. Gospel confidence arises when we see the uniqueness of Jesus. And gospel confidence arises when we see that anyone can be reached. So we have three texts we're going to look at. As Bill uh, read them for us, three texts we're going to look at. So the first one is uh, the disciples in the Sea of Galilee, the storm. Um, the disciples have a way of handling their anxieties. Uh, so do you. Uh, they're called coping skills, right? Uh, coping skills are varied. Uh, some of them are actually very mature. You can detach yourself from frustrating things, hard things. You, you've, you've matured, you figure out how not to get caught up in things. So that's a coping skill. Uh, turning to a bottle of whiskey uh, can be a coping skill. Uh, in the world of coping skills, there's all kinds of things that we do. Uh, sometimes we're aware of them, sometimes we're, perhaps we're not. The disciples have a way of thinking about their anxieties. They have kept the troubled world at bay. When Jesus meets the disciples, again, we've said this a couple of times, their, their view of everything is intact. What does it mean to be Jewish? What does it mean that Messiah is coming? Well, what is life all about? Everything is intact. They don't have many, many, many questions about life. They're, they're on with life. They're mature uh, fishermen. No, they don't have any questions. They've got their coping skills down. They're able to keep the troubled world at a comfortable distance, Right? Um, we adults have uh, more mature uh, coping skills than our children, right? We don't ever whine, do we? Do we ever complain like our children do? What, why we're, we're much more mature, aren't we? I thought that would be the response, right? 
Before we will ever have gospel confidence, we're going to have to have our fears addressed. The fears that really are functioning at the heart level, where we're making decisions, where we're choosing, where we're, where we're living, the steering wheel of our life is our heart. And at that place where we're choosing, that's the place where God is going to be working. We are always trying to make sense of chaotic events, disappointments, hardships. Jesus is training his disciples to look right at them. Look right at these hardships, difficulties, confusions, impossibilities, and know that I am with you. This is a training exercise in the middle of the Sea of Galilee about their developing new ways of seeing, new ways of coping, if you like that way of saying it. But here's an account of coping skills that don't work anymore. These men are terrified, terrified fishermen. And they see waves, and they have wind that is blowing, that is so threatening to them that they are deeply fearful. We are terrified in our day of different kinds of things. We have kind of a, terrified might sound like too hard of a word, but we are afraid of being bored. That's a fear. We are afraid of slowing down, and so we love speed and busyness. And by the way, if you have a lot of speed in your life and you're busy, then you don't have time to think about yourself or your fears. But the disciples in the boat have an inescapable experience of self-reflection. <laughs> an inescapable experience of self-reflection. I had one of these. I was 10 years old uh, with my family, um, and we were traveling from Taiwan to Hong Kong. My father had done his master's work in Chinese education in Taiwan, 1968. I'm 10 years old, trusting my older brothers when I probably shouldn't have been. We're on a, we're on a passenger ship, uh, part of the Oriental Overseas Line. And uh, a 22-hour trip from the south of Taiwan to Hong Kong turned into a three-and-a-half-day voyage because Typhoon Shirley decided to meet us. We encountered a typhoon in the middle of our trip to Hong Kong. Uh, that's quite an experience if you've been out at sea and to experience those kinds of waves. Uh, all the doors were locked uh, so the passengers wouldn't go out on the deck, but my older brothers found a door that was open. In, uh, when I say locked, that means they were chained locked. So we go out there on the deck while there is waves beyond, uh, just beyond belief, this gray, angry ocean. And I'm, we're holding on to this bar, right? There's a bar alongside the wall there. And we're holding on to the bar, right, doing this. <laughs> and we, we were out there for about 25 seconds, seeing just sheer terror out here in the water. And then uh, uh, we went back in and... My parents never knew about it. 
that was an inescapable experience of self-reflection. Calvin said that we will not aspire to God until we have begun to be displeased with ourselves. For who of us is not disposed to rest in himself? So these Galilean fishermen that morning, they didn't wake up and say, I would like to have a great experience in self-reflection. They didn't say that. I would like to be terrified to the point where my true needs are revealed. They didn't say that while they were cooking their fish for breakfast. You see, we are actively working to, in our coping skills, to push aside the world, and we work hard to maintain our cool. But something else is going on here, and that, of course, is Jesus is going to train them to not rest in themselves. Even when they're in the most comfortable of all places where they are familiar, their profession And it will be God's same agenda for us when something about you, where you trust in your area of expertise and things don't go right. You have so much experience, well, you have so much skill, you have so much training, so much education, and yet you can't quite manage the situation. Welcome to the Christian life. God in those moments is training you to live by faith and to experience that fear, but the heart goes upward in that the heart goes upward in those moments. Now there's anger going on here, by the way, when uh, there's more going on here than just terror. There's there's also some anger. Verse 38. Do you not care? You, you the miracle worker, you the one who's promised us so many things, don't you care? You have the ability to do something, don't you? C.S. Lewis writes in the Screwtape Letters, men are not angered by mere misfortune, but misfortune conceived as injury because their swollen sense of self has been offended. It's not just being hurt. It's the sense of, I'm entitled not to be hurt. I live in, you you don't know who you're dealing with. I am the one who should never be hurt, bothered, experience difficulties. Well, welcome to the world of turn the other cheek. Welcome to the world of the impossible. Love your enemies. You see, gospel confidence, we're we're never going to have gospel confidence until we know that Jesus is dealing with our personal fears. We are not going to have it. In essence, we see in pride things that matter if and only if they matter to me. And what's the greatest fear of our age? I would suggest to you one of the greatest fears of our age is self-reflection. I'm borrowing from Blaise Pascal here. A couple hundred years ago, he discovered that the the modern world developing in Europe, do you know what's the problem with people? They can't sit in a room and be at peace with themselves. We are afraid to slow down and to think. It's a modern preoccupation. 
the fear of facing myself. That's why we love our digital devices. That's why we love distraction. That's why we want speed. But for us and the us who believe in Christ, there's, a, there's atonement. There's the promise of God's forgiveness. There's the promise of a new identity. There's a promise of being remade, of looking out onto the world. Who owns this world? Who controls this world? Who is this that even the sea and the waves obey him? That's how we're to look at Who is this that even the wild orchids are blooming right now up in the Ko'olaus and no one will see them? Who is this that? Who is this that? And you begin to look at the world as it is. The God, may, it may appear to be chaotic, but God is in control. They are having an experience of intense self-reflection. They used to think, I'm a Galilean fisherman, able to fish, control my boat. I know the sea well. I'm aware of who I am, what I need, where I'm going. This is who I am. They have a definitive way of understanding themselves. The disciples have an experience of deep and terrible fear awakened in them. They don't understand their intense need for Jesus. Self-reflection brings us to understanding something of who we are and who we've been made for. It awakens us to live for God's glory. Who is this who can so powerfully interact with where we really live and redirect our hearts? Jesus is speaking to really where they're living, the fear and terror of their hearts. He is speaking to that. For that moment in the the Sea of Galilee, that's what he did. For us, though, we understand that he spoke to our greatest fears. How will I ever stand before a holy God? The book of Hebrews tells us that the fear of death is always in the, the random access memory of our system. The fear of death is always working. Jesus has come to speak to that fear. You see, I want you to become evangelists. I want you to become evangelists. I want you to understand that God is in the moments of your day. I want you to have gospel confidence that arises, that that Jesus has really spoken to to your fears. I want you to be an evangelist. The way you learn evangelism, by the way, is by doing it. That's how you learn it. It's kind of, it's interesting to read about it, but it's actually not that exciting. And you begin to explore what what are the fears of this person, how they respond to you, how they perhaps try to put you down for believing this kind of stuff or the narrowness of Christianity or whatever their particular stance is. But you learn about evangelism by doing it. You know that I came to faith at 19 years old. I was a happy California pagan, uh, dabbling in New Age kind of stuff, doing all kinds of interesting things. I was avant-garde, really reading strange spirituality stuff, and I was pretty happy as a person. And then one particular Sunday, I went to church in Fallbrook, California, and I heard the gospel preached from Acts chapter 9, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. I cast myself upon this God. I didn't know if he would do 
what he did to Saul to me. I didn't know. I didn't know anything. I came to faith in Jesus in time. I believe that at that moment was my conversion. So I lived on a beach house in, in, uh, in Encinitas, California, North County, San Diego, 4th Street, 744 4th Street, still there, on a very unstable bluff, by the way. And down below on the bluff one day, this is a couple of weeks after my conversion was a guy, and right nearby was the Transcendental Meditation Center. In the 1930s, a gentleman named Paramhansa Yogananda wrote a book called The Autobiography of a Yogi in the 1930s, and he established the Self-Realization Center of Encinitas, and it's there on the just about 200 yards from my parents' house at the time. And so there were all kinds of people meditating all around, and... Um, I felt responsible in some way to try to connect with these people. So they'd be on the beaches meditating. And uh, this might have been my personality. Uh, so I pick up, a, I pick up a, some green beach glass. And I look at it and I say to myself, that's how you saw the world before Jesus, right before Jesus. That's what it was like. You look through that. God had so spoken to my fears and it had awakened my fears, which were real, that I, I began to realize that, wait a minute, it was just words that that man used in, in church that day, words, and now I'm called to use words. So I walked up to a man during sunset. There he is, right there, meditating, and I tap him on the knee. Hi, can I talk to you? <laughs> He's in my backyard, by the way, too. He's on my property. very sweet man, and uh, we start talking. And I said, you know, I believe God has me talking to you right now so that you might come to know Jesus. I've like known, I, I, I'm like three weeks into this stuff. I have no idea. You, I don't even know the Bible. I'm not here to brag. or to, to, I'm just, I am out there to say that the way you learn evangelism is by doing it. Here's the deal. So he, he responds to me and says this. Well, I believe God is a God of love, and if he is, uh, wants me to come to know Jesus, then he will direct me. I said, that's why I'm here. <laughs> well, we already got that solved. Couple, about a couple weeks later, I picked up a, a teenager. I'm about 20 year, 19, I'm 19 years old. Maybe I'm almost 20 at this time. I'm trying to think where it is. I'm 19. Pick up this teenager on El Camino Real, driving north to Carlsbad. And I said, you know, one of the reasons why I picked you up is I wanted to tell you about Jesus. But uh, we, we can talk about anything you like, but I'd like to talk to you about Jesus, how important he is to me. He says, I don't believe in anything I can't see. The 16-year-old kid's like talking to me this way. How do you learn evangelism? You do it by, 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 by doing it. So I said, well, have you ever seen, I was going to say, have you ever seen your brain, but that would have been cruel. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, you got to be humble with this stuff, right? So I said, I said, have you ever seen China? He said, well, I've seen pictures. I said, oh, man, that's a good answer. Then I said this. I said, well, when it comes to Jesus and the Bible, I'm your picture. That trained me, that, those experiences right off the bat in the Christian life, those trained me to do something. When I encounter a non-Christian, very similar to Jesus' style, and I want to encourage you to do this, to encounter a non-Christian, it feels like you're up in the, well, what about, 
what about, you know, how's the Bible reliable? What about this? Right? You know, you're up in this netherworld of all oh, these ideas, right? And so you can, in the abstract world, bring it down to right now. Right now it's happening. When Jesus went through certain cities, it wasn't up in the netherworld. Like, well, you know, someday and maybe, and it was right now this is happening. So I might be so bold to say, I want you to know the kingdom of God has come to you right now in the words that are being shared with you. It's happening now. Lift up your eyes to see the fields. Now, this sort of springs out of a gospel confidence. We who believe in the sovereignty of God and conversion, oh, I'm talking to a whole, you should sign up to be an evangelist today. To believe that God can use your half-baked thoughts and your your misquoted scripture, you didn't quite get that right, and all your fumbling and you you feel so inadequate, God can use you. And, of course, he's speaking through you. Have you ever seen someone come to faith and to watch how exciting it is? Gospel confidence arises, again, from our own personal fears being addressed. Of course, the disciples now are somewhat catching on to who Jesus is. It's the beginning. This is, this is the goal of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus? Who are you? And now, what are you doing about it? That's really what Mark's gospel is about. Now, Mark chapter 8, the pinnacle, kind of the, one of the key moments in the gospel when Peter confesses Christ, right? Who do the people say that I am, right? This is repeated in, in Matthew chapter 16. Who, and Peter correctly identifies Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. Gospel confidence, secondly, arises when the uniqueness of Jesus, when we see the uniqueness of Jesus. I think we all understand the uniqueness of Jesus, I think. We often encounter in our day and age the complaint of the exclusivity of the Christian gospel. It is so narrow, right? No, So narrow. And I have found that let Jesus speak about his own uniqueness. Let Jesus speak for himself. You are not making up that he is the only way. He is. And as C.S. Lewis presented what's called the trilemma, he is either the Lord, and he is who he said he is, or he is a liar, or he is a lunatic. That is the one to keep in your back pocket. Who do you say Jesus is? And everyone who can understand that sentence or that question is going to come to some conclusion. Some people have no knowledge of Jesus and they need our help. Precision in science is not uh, dismissed. You know, rocket science, like the angle that a, a spacecraft has to come back into our, our atmosphere, Right? Isn't that pretty precise, or is it just kind of general? You want me do you want me doing that math? It has to be precise, right? If it's too steep, what happens? The capsule burns up. If it's too shallow, what happens? 
they ricochet off. Isn't that right? Mike, if I got this right? We'd never see these space people again, right? We'll never see them again. And, and no one would turn to that NASA scientist and say, you mean there's only one angle for the spacecraft to come back? Yeah, it's, only, it's 14 degrees. That's so narrow. It's so narrow. Why aren't we more open to new ideas about this thing? Right, I'm saying? Christianity is only arrogant and only narrow if it's not true. Meaning it would be, it would be arrogant to pr- provide a, a, a defense of Christianity when it's not true. But what would happen if it's true? Then it's the most loving thing possible like that scientist who figured out the angle to return to earth just the same way let Jesus speak to his own uniqueness. One sentence you utter can help a Muslim understand that Jesus never viewed himself as one of the prophets or the prophet of love. You can represent Jesus in one sentence. One sentence you can help a skeptic understand that 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to 500 people resurrected, talking, eating. 500 people. One sentence was uttered by Dallas Willard in his philosophy classes at the University of Southern California as a professor. He would, he would, kids would ask him, students would ask him, why do you believe in Jesus? And his answer was, he's the wisest person who ever lived. Who are you trusting in? One sentence. One sentence will get someone thinking like, or if you know your Bible well, you'll probably have someone quote something about the Bible that's not there at all. You say, right? Jesus never said that. Right? Some of you, some of you have that biblical grasp. So the uniqueness of Jesus, I would encourage you. If and by the way, if someone is actually talking about Jesus in a conversation, oh man, that is awesome. You're not talking about the church, the problem of this, or the the crazy popes or whatever. You are now talking about Jesus. You're talking about Jesus and his words and his miracles. Believe this person is possibly close to the kingdom itself. Have that conversation. It's okay when we are with people like who are asking us questions that we don't have all the answers, and they don't expect us to have all the answers, and nor do they expect us to be Bible experts. You just testify. You just testify. Tell your story. And in this passage, Peter rightly identifies who Jesus is. Then, of course, he tells them to keep it a secret. Isn't that unusual right there in Mark 8? Uh, by the way, don't tell anybody about this. Well, in the context, Peter's the only one who got it right. Um, so it's probably good that the rest of them don't tell, <laughs> don't say anything. It's like in a math class, if only one person gets the problem right, it probably sh- you don't have a lot of math teachers there, right? So it's good that we wait for a while so the Holy Spirit comes in the book of Acts and they are instructed, right? Gospel confidence arises when we see the uniqueness of Jesus. And finally, gospel confidence arises when we see that anyone can be reached. Mark 15, the culmination of Mark's gospel is that a centurion is the one who gets Jesus, gets it right. A centurion uh, who had no doubt seen crucifixions regularly. That's how the Romans intimidated those that they subjugated. And the centurion is watching, and we don't know what it must have been what Jesus said from the cross. 
And he says, surely this is the Son of God. In the mundane events, and that would have been a mundane event for the centurion, just another day when some people are crucified outside of Jerusalem, seen it many, many times before. In the mundane events, be on the watch for those that you might be surprised God can reach. He rightly understands what's going on. He had probably a, a hard heart, callous, able to direct his men to you know, do whatever he wanted them to do. Perhaps he was involved directly with the crucifixion. But he is a surprise, and he's a signal to us that the person that you may not imagine can come to Christ will. doesn't matter how together the person appears, how affluent, how down and out their place in society, how skilled, competent, successful. If God is preparing the heart, no one can hold back his hand. Notice also he doesn't privatize this and say, well, I believe he's the Son of God. Oh, I believe that he, right, prefaces it with that. No, this is the Son of God, an objective fact. In the mundane moments, God can work. Let me give you just a few final ideas about evangelism. A good theological, biblical foundation is always helpful. Be prepared for trail, uh, rabbit trails and red herrings. Some people just really want to get you off, to- off topic. Be prepared to agree with them that Christians have acted terribly. Read the book of Acts over and over and over again if you want to get caught up in mission. Direct them to read scripture have a basic curiosity about people and a genuine curiosity about people. I would encourage you to forget some canned presentation of evangelism. Just be person-centered. Respect them as people. and Be willing to enter into a long conversation. Might, might be a conversation that lasts three weeks, three months, three years or longer. Know your limits, but provide resources. I don't agree with everything that uh, C.S. Lewis says in, in the book Mere Christianity, but it's a, it's a fantastic read. Um, there's other, all kinds of other resources. So know your limits, but provide resources. So give, give them a book. Simple acts of kindness will go great, uh, will, will really do well. You might even arouse a curiosity by attending Lord's Day worship regularly. If you're part of the bird club on the island, and there is a bird bird club on the island, they have a Facebook page with 1,500 members. And the bird club is going to have a, a bird bird watching event on Sunday morning, and you just tell some of your friends there, no, I, I, I'm going to watch my Savior in church. Sends an interesting a message, sends a message. One time for a Christmas party, someone said, they put near the punch bowl a small sign and it said want to attend a Christmas Eve service and they gave the address of the church Trinity Church 
just by the punch bowl, an indirect communication. Realize that you are a guide or a midwife, and God does the actual birth itself. And realize also, as John 3, 6, 3 tells us, that God's spirit is sovereign. God's spirit is sovereign, and he is moving us. And I would deeply encourage you to anticipate God leading you. Leading you. Anticipate that. Let's pray. Lord, all you're doing is restoring us to what it means to be human beings again. To glory in you. That's, that's what's going on. To glory in you. To, to make sense of life because we see you. Lord, thank you for the reminder that you call us to be disciples and to, and to confess Christ. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.